Welcome to The Rework with Allison Tyler-Jones, a podcast dedicated to inspiring portrait photographers to uniquely brand, profitably price, and confidently sell their best work. Allison has been doing just that for the last 15 years, and she's proven that it's possible to create unforgettable art and run a portrait business that supports your family and your dreams. All it takes is a little rework. Episodes will include interviews with experts from in and outside of the photo industry, mini workshops, and behind-the-scenes secrets that Allison uses in her portrait studio every single day. She will challenge your thinking and inspire your confidence to create a profitable, sustainable portrait business you love through continually refining and reworking your business. Let's do the rework. It might seem obvious that one of the most requested topics that we've had for the podcast is to discuss how to work with a custom framer. And so on today's podcast, I am bringing my very own custom framer, Rob Brinton from Mataj Custom Framing, who does all of the custom framing for our studio. He does everything. He happens to be in the same building as we are. He came into the building the same year that we did. We came into the building together in 2009. And that's by design because I strong-armed him and made him come in with me when I went into that studio space. And it's been a great relationship. We've learned how to maximize materials, how to brainstorm ideas for product. He's just been a partner in every sense of the word, the very best kind of vendor partnership that you can have. And so today I'm going to discuss with Rob how we started that relationship, how we make it work and talk about ways in which you might be able to strike up a relationship with the custom framer in your area, along with some common mistakes that people make in framing, hanging things and all that, all things framing. Welcome, Rob Brenton, to the Rework Podcast. I'm so happy that you're here today. My pleasure to join you. Thank you. Okay, so we have been friends for a long time, for a while, 15-ish years? 15 years, yeah. Crazy. Okay, so Rob is my custom framer. He owns Mataj Custom Framing, and his studio, his framing studio, is in the same building as my portrait photography studio. And that is all by design because we came into the, the building together. And I have had so many people ask me, they wanted to know like how to set up a partnership with a custom framer. You know, a lot of portrait photographers are looking for ways to establish relationships with custom framers in their area. And then I want to talk about that. And then I also want to talk about framing and design and all things custom framing. So we're just going to do it. Awesome. So when I've talked to you about like establishing a relationship with a custom framer, you've said that in your industry, that's not really a thing that most custom framers want to do. Is that fair? Yeah. I think there's a little bit of an aversion to it just because frame shops as a whole, and I'm sure it applies to photographers and other industries, get approached by a lot of people that, you know, hey, if you give me a really good deal, I'm going to make your business awesome. And usually that doesn't come to fruition. And so I think some of them are just skeptical. Yeah. No, photographers are no stranger to somebody telling you that if you do something for free, that they'll refer a ton of work to you and then it never happens. So that's really not ever a way to approach a relationship, I think, from from the beginning. So from your side, I mean, I know I know what I think about how our relationship began, but like from your side, how do you see that it came about like in your mind? I mean, from my side, I had the the opinion or the idea all along that I would love to work with photographers, designers, artists. 
um, you know, with the expectation that they'd be getting a good deal from me and could turn around and sell their product. And then in turn, that would bring me a lot of business. So I, from the moment we met and you said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be a photographer and I'm, I'm hoping to grow my business and I need a framer. That sounded like an ideal partnership. And, and I know there's other framers out there that are, have no problem with that and love doing those partnerships as well. So up until the time that you and I had met, I had been trying to do it myself. I'd been trying to, you know, buying frames pre-joined from a company. And I was out in my garage trying to, you know, with canned air, blow the black spots off of a white mat and static and Arizona desert. And it was just like, I hated it. And I'm just not careful enough or detailed enough to make that good. So to me, you were like an answer to prayer because you're so OCD. And when you... If you haven't looked at the picture of Rob that we're going to put up with this podcast, he is just so dialed. He's like got the knife edge part in his hair. He's got the tie, the button down shirt, and then the apron over the top of it. He just always looks like a million bucks. It's totally professional and OCD in all the best ways possible. So when we came together, I did have an idea of kind of how much volume I was doing. So I remember we had a conversation about that. I was like, I was doing, I'm doing about X thousand number of dollars per year with this joint framer. And just so that you kind of had an idea of what it was that I was doing. Was that helpful? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Because again, we're always promised things that don't always happen. So when someone comes to me and says, Hey, I'm already doing this kind of business and I'd love to transfer it over to you. Obviously that makes that decision a lot easier. So we went on the journey and you actually had worked for a local custom framer at the time that we met. I was taking things to a local custom framer that was not you. You were an employee of that company and you subsequently went out on your own into a strip mall area. And so for the first couple of years, we just worked together where I would bring my prints and everything to you and then you would frame them for me. And it was awesome. And then 2009 happened and we decided that I went out of my home studio into commercial space and I came and twisted your arm and made you come into the building with me. And we're also in the same building as my sister that's an interior designer. So all three businesses are in the same building, which is really awesome. Yeah. Best move ever. Yeah. It was, it's good. It's so good. So now I'm like, whenever we talk about like, whenever our leases come up, I'm like, we can never uncouple the businesses because it's just too easy to walk across the hallway with a print rather than to have to like put something in my car and bring it to you. So one of the things I remembered that was super helpful for me when we started working together is we figured out how can we make it a win-win relationship? Because I didn't want you to be undercutting yourself so that I could make all the money on the frames. And I didn't want, I needed to be able to mark things up and be able to have that make my business sustainable as well. So what I found was helpful is you and I worked together and we got a spreadsheet together and figured out, okay, how many frames did we start out with? Do you remember? Just a couple, probably initially. I'm trying to remember how many it was. It was very few. There was, was like a couple black. blacks and couple, yeah, like thin and thick, <laughs> black. Yeah. Yep. That was two options. And then we figured out like some would be matted and some would not be matted. So it was kind of like really just narrowing that product line. And then at one point we said, okay, let's just stock this. If we can buy a box of this molding, because you do all the joining in your in-house. So you're not ordering anything pre-joined. You are joining it yourself. Is that right? Correct. And most, if a framer is not doing that, it's going to be harder for them to do some sort of work and profit sharing with you just because their markups are not going to be well enough either. Okay. that And that's really good to know. So so how would you ask that question if our listeners are going to go into a frame shop and, and kind of strike up a relationship? 
what is the right question to ask about that? Like, are you ordering your frames pre-joined or are you doing your joining in-house? Exactly. If they cut and join their own frames or if they're ordering them already cut. Ideally, you're wanting a framer that is buying length molding and cutting it themselves because then they can buy in those box quantities like you're talking about and get much better deals and have a, a margin. It's just a better margin. Okay. That makes sense. So we decided on, I decided on a very simple, it wasn't 15 frames. It was like two frames, a black mat, thicker and thinner. He started to stock those moldings for me. So he would buy them by the box. So he was able to give me a good discount on that. And then we created a spreadsheet so that I knew like all the traditional sizes, you know, like the eight by 10, the 16 by 20, like all of that. So we had a spreadsheet. So I knew I could plug that into my pricing and know what all of that was. So it made it really easy for me to incorporate the framing as a product into my business because you gave me all of that information. And then we just update that annually. Yeah. Cause you need, you don't want to have a whole separate software to price framing. You just need a spreadsheet that you can look at and say, all right, here's all my popular sizes and here's how much framing cost in each of those sizes. Exactly. And there've been times when I created a work order so that we just, when we bring the work over to you, I have a work order that's very, and we've had different work orders. We've had complicated work orders and we found that easy, simple spreadsheet work orders work the best. So you just have like the quantity, the size, the name of the frame or the number of the frame, and then how it's going to be, whether it's going to have a mat on it or whatever. And then just clear communication because we've had things go wrong in the past. Either we've made a mistake on it or you've made a mistake on it. And it usually somewhere comes into that work order being not clear. Yeah. And so we've got it pretty simplified now. And it's, you know, and it helps like you were talking about to not have a ton of different styles that you're offering to have you know, so the keywords make it really easy to just say, all right, I know exactly how you want this. Yep. And the other thing that's been great is the communication with you'll say, Hey, I'm letting you know that this one molding that we use all the time for you, we're having like right now, supply chain is ridiculous. And uh, when COVID was shutting everything down, it was really hard to get stuff. And so you were let, you would let me know ahead of time that one molding that you have now that we're up to probably about seven moldings now that that's going to be hard to get or they've run out of it or whatever. And then we just reselect rather than doing it retroactively, like the client's already seen it. They already love that frame. And then now we can't get it. Yeah. Okay. So clear communication, having the pricing set up or being able to order by the box and have you stock that gives you a better margin. It allows you to give me a better price and it makes all the good things. So let's just talk about actual framing itself. What do you feel like when when somebody is going in to look for a custom framer? What is something to be aware of? Like maybe warning signs, red flags, or how a sign of a good framer, or like what what should people be looking for when they're looking to work with a custom framer? So a lot of us probably are OCD, as you mentioned. I'm a perfectionist, but there are, as in every business, there's ones that are good and ones that are not. And so the product that they're going to be giving you is going to represent you and your framed artwork, your framed photography. So you're just going to you're going to need to see some examples of their work. Sometimes you can tell just by walking in their shop how it's arranged, how it's kept. I would say you're probably going to need to shell over a little bit of money, maybe even and place an order and see how it works, you know, see how fast they were able to do it, see what the quality is, see what the look is to kind of find out if you're going to be able to work together long term. And that's exactly what I did, you know, working with that other framer that you had worked for. I knew when you were there and working, it always came out really well, (laughs) you know, and so I soon learned who was the perfectionist behind that whole thing. And 
I've been in lots of frame shops. There's some that are just the, the stuff's so outdated. It's dusty. It's not well kept. You know, you're like, okay, if I leave my stuff here, is it going to be safe? You know, so I think that's something to look at. Yeah, for sure. And I think other than that, it's just, you know, sitting down and, and having a, a conversation again, that's not approached as don't worry, I'm going to make your business awesome. It's more of just how can we make this a win-win for both of us? I've got a product that I need to produce. I need frames. And we as framers want to sell frames, obviously. So when you have a photographer that needs frames, that's a great partnership. So I, I think, you know, it's got to just be, again, we're, we're great because we're next door to each other in the same building. So you're going to need to find somebody that's geographically going to work out to go back and forth from your business. You're going to want to discuss how they're going to handle your prints. How are they going to store them to make sure that damage doesn't occur? You, for instance, work with fine art prints, and those are extremely fragile. And so there has to be processes and systems in place to make sure that everybody understands you know, what, what has to happen to, to get a quality product. Yeah, for sure. And what about installation? Is that something that a lot of framers provide? There's probably a good portion that provide installation. And so that's something that, you know, if you want to have that be one of your services, having the framer do that could be an, an added bonus to what you're offering to where they can frame it and install it for you. And you don't have to worry about it. And the client loves that the finished product is then hung on their wall. And I know that, you know, as many photographers are kind of DIYers and figure like, well, I don't want to pay somebody else to do that. I could just order it joined or whatever. And you've worked uh, with a photographer that we both know that he kind of did that. He would order stuff pre-joined and then was he having you finish them off or like, what was that relationship like? Yeah, we've got various clients that do, that still do different models of that. Some that, you know, we're just finishing in frames that they already have. Some where we're just providing them the frames and they are putting the thing together. So it really just depends on where you want to be and where you feel like you can make the money. As you stated, it's a whole nother business to learn how to properly fit and clean a professional product. And so if you don't want to be doing that on your table or in your garage or wherever you have, you can get a much better product by paying a professional to do that. But depending on what there is, I have a photographer who all they sell is canvases. And so mm -hmm. it's very easy to stick canvas in a frame. And so they just order the frames from us and they put their own artwork in them. Got it. Well, and the thing that I love about how we work together is that I know 100% it's going to be perfection. So even where if I'm going and hanging a gallery and you've framed those images for me, well, of course you framed them because nobody else is framing them for me. But when you frame the images for me and I'm hanging a gallery, you say if they're all the same size of print, like all a bunch of framed eight by tens, or even putting the wire at the same distance from the top of that what's the word I'm trying to say? Like yeah. you're even so having the, the wire at the same thing. height. So, yeah. So when you go to hang them, you don't have to figure that out on every one. You just know that every print, you know, every nail goes four inches down from the top. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's so amazing. So that's just one like attention to detail. The other is that I know what my core competency is and isn't. And so I don't want to mess with any of that. I don't want to be handling glass and I don't want to be trying to get dust off of it and all that. But I also know that I can, without reservation, guarantee every single thing to my client. And that's, a, I guarantee our work that if anything happens to it, if it breaks, it's smashed or there's a problem with it or whatever, it is a hundred percent guarantee because you warranty so well for me that if there's something that's gone wrong, that you've done it. And my famous story that I will always tell about Rob 
is that in early days, we did a huge, like, I don't know, 500 piece gallery that got hung in uh, Montecito, California, in the state there, one of my sister's projects. And we hung it, we went over, we installed it, Rob had framed it all. And they called on, let's see, Labor Day weekend, I think it was 2008. And (laughs) they said, um, all of the prints are bubbling. So they're all not bubbling, but like wavy. And it was because of the humidity. They were framed in the desert. We hung them in basically the beach. And I thought I was going to die. So I called Rob and I was crying and I told him what happened. And he's like, oh, we didn't even remember. We didn't even think that we should had to dry mount those. We just didn't even think because they weren't, none of them were super big. So he got in his truck with a dry mount press with his brother and he drove from Phoenix to Montecito, which is like, how long of a drive was that? Like seven, eight hours? Eight hours. Eight hours. Spent the entire weekend in their garage, pulled every single one of them off the wall, dry mounted them all, and then rehung them to perfection and sent me pictures of it and did not charge me a dime. And so it's interesting because I tell, when people ask me, well, what do you think of your framer over there? But maybe they want to use him for things other than what my work is. I tell that story. That's like my Mataj custom framing branding story. Like that's who he is because he will just always guarantee everything. And so I don't have to worry about it. So I don't mind. I want him to be successful because he is going to provide that kind of service for me. So I, I wish for all of you to have a Rob at Mataj in your life because to be able to guarantee that work that way is really a huge advantage to my business. So I appreciate you. Thank you. We appreciate working with you. So let's just talk for a little bit about interior design or designing, framing, that sort of thing. What do you feel like are the biggest mistakes people make when it comes to framing? This could be photographers. This could be just people in general. Our trade, like all trades, have some standards, some specifications, kind of rules that, you know, what proportion your mat should be and what colors are going to go with it. And, and so you really have to be able to trust your framer to know that they know their profession. I think one of the mistakes that interior designers sometimes make is even though they're really good in their trade, they may not understand some of the fundamentals of framing and and what looks good is balance and design and just the basics of how something can be constructed. And so Mm -hmm. trust your framer and say, hey, I've got this idea. Is this something that can be built and is feasible? And, And being able to take the advice of your framer if they say, you know what? that frame will simply not support this project or the proportions you have are going to look out of scale. So being able to trust that the framer kind of knows what they're doing as well. Yeah, because there's math involved. We run up against math a lot, you and I. (laughs) And then, well, are you saying like with construction-wise, like maybe they're trying to pick too thin of a frame for too big of a piece? Yeah, right now, thin frames are very much all the rage. So Mm -hmm. people very, very thin frames on sometimes very large art. And there's ways to make that work, but you just have to take that into account that if you're using a thin frame, it's probably going to need to be a deep frame so that it Mm -hmm. can be on the back with additional stretcher bar or strainer bar. Okay. And then, yeah, because then when you get, especially if you're using glass, that glass gets heavy and you've got this, like a teeny little thin frame, it's going to be like, it's going to kill somebody. Yeah. What about like the UV glass conservation glass debate? Because there's, there's seems to be a debate about conservation. So define both of those things and then tell me why and where you would use each. Yeah. So glass, regular old picture framing glass has a level of UV protectant just because anytime you cover something, even with a clear substance, it's it's blocking some of the UV rays. Mm-hmm. Not enough to what we would call conservation or to offer really any real protection. 
So there are UV protected glass. Usually it's going to be a 97 to 99% protection rating. And the cost difference nowadays is really not that big. It used to be a big jump. And so you really had to determine if your art was worth it. Most framers that I know, it's just a standard that you're only using UV protected glass. That's the base, right? That's the base. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, if you really want to save money on very cheap art, but you know, most people that are investing in, in photography, they want it to last. And so mm-hmm. having that UV protection is just going to ensure that fading happens at a much slower rate or doesn't happen. Now you still can't hang it in direct sunlight or you're going to have fading because that's, it's not fade proof. It just helps it to not fade. Gotcha. Then what about conservation? So, and from the, and so anything that's termed conservation glass usually has that protection. And apart from just regular conservation glass, which looks like normal glass, but it has the UV protectant, there's also things like museum glass where it has the UV protection and the added protection or the added anti glare. So it looks clearer and has less reflection, but it still has that same level of UV protection. Gotcha. I guess I meant museum. So I'm not using the right terms, right? So conservation is UV and then museum glass is the more expensive. What's the one that's like four times more expensive than the other one? Museum glass is quite a bit more expensive than conservation. Clear glass is what it's typically referred to or conservation. They both are conservation glass in that they both have the exact same UV rating. Museum has the added anti-glare coating. Okay. Yeah, And, and those so, are both plexiglass as well, if you're choosing to use plexiglass versus regular glass. Okay. And so why would you use plexiglass, which is acrylic, right? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why would you use so plexi over advantage- glass? Yeah. The main advantage of plexiglass is that it does not break. When you're dealing with a paper product like photography, if your glass breaks, there's a very good chance that it's going to cut or scratch the photograph mm-hmm. as well. So often in in the framing world, it's kind of a standard that if something is irreplaceable or very valuable, the default is to use plexiglass. Again, that's a discussion you have to use with your framer. Photographs are not irreplaceable nowadays because Mm -hmm. it's for us, it's worth the risk that if something ever breaks, okay, you'll reprint it and we'll reframe it. Um, And that has rarely happened. Plexiglass in general is more expensive. So that's something that has to be taken into account. It scratches much easier because it's a plastic product, whereas glass, you don't ever have to worry about it scratching. It attracts um, so dust, there, like a It attracts dust because of static electricity. So in our particular relationship, we've determined that glass is a superior product for most things. Now, glass only goes up to a certain size. So when you get bigger than a certain size and you still want the protection over it, then that's when you have to use plexiglass or acrylic because you just don't have the option of, of going that large in glass. Right. And and then also with acrylic, it's lighter weight. So it's better for shipping. Uh, mm-hmm. If there's any chance that it's going to get knocked off a wall or whatever, it's not going to kill somebody. Yeah. yeah. Or if you're hanging, you know, if it's going to be hung in a child's room or a playroom where there potentially could be objects, or, you know, you know, hitting it, then that's a consideration too, that it would be safer to use plexiglass. So what is the biggest size of glass? That you can have typically 40 by 60 okay is the largest so if you're going larger than that then you have to default to plexiglass okay so those are just all things that have to be taken into consideration on that there's some framers that won't even use 40 by 60 glass because they just don't want to handle a piece of glass that big maybe they're smaller or shorter or Interesting. you know okay want to do it so that's something you have to talk about with your framer because of the danger yeah yeah 
So the museum glass, then the anti-glare that's four times more, I don't know how much more, but it's a lot more expensive than regular UV glass. Why would you suggest to use, I know that you've used it like in shadow boxes and that sort of thing. So it kind of looks like it's not there, but there still is some glare to it. Even though it says anti-glare, there really is still some glare to it. Would you say? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And so unfortunately it's not invisible. Some people call it invisible glass and that's of course very misleading. Mm -hmm. Um, If you've got real strong window lighting, then it's almost impossible to avoid glare, even with the museum glass. But when there's not an adjacent window or real strong lighting, there's certain situations, like you said, on a shadow box that's in a nicely lit, but not window lit area where it looks amazing glass and it looks just amazing on it. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. That's really awesome. So when a photographer is striking up a relationship and they're narrowing down frames, is there any advice that you could give to photographers that are maybe just starting in with this frame in relationship and they're not really sure, like, how do you get frames that look really good? You know, and I are always looking for this. How do you get frames that look really good, that look sexy, that look custom and amazing, but aren't like super, super expensive because you've got to be able to mark them up, you know? Yeah. No. And you just have to have that conversation. I get photographers that come in all the time and just randomly go to my wall and select the frames they want. And of course, often they're selecting very expensive moldings that would be difficult for them to really, you know, purchase at a good price and and make a good profit on. And Mm -hmm. so we just have a conversation say, okay, I'm looking for a silver that kind of looks like this. What's the highest quality, but least expensive thing that you can find. And then I go and I do my research and find out what can I buy by the box that looks sleek, that's easy to work with. And we've had to make adjustments. Sometimes we've picked a molding that's just a pain to work with. It's difficult to cut. It's difficult to join. And that all means that I don't like working with it. I don't like selling it. And it's not going to work out for, you know, a large volume project right. might be doing. So right. And if you do, if I do love it, you might even have to charge more for it because it's, you've got to touch it. It requires way too much touch up or. Yeah. And so just having that frame conversation with your framer and saying, okay, here's the price range I'm looking in. You know, what can you offer me? What, what kind of moldings can we find? And, and again, going back to, you're probably going to have to do some test product to make sure that it's coming out to the standards that you're wanting when it's, when it's a finished product. Yeah. Well, for sure. And so I think, you know, starting out, you for sure should just go in as a client of that business. Don't lead with, give me a discount, but like frame a few pieces and see how they do. Like what's the turnaround time? What's the promise time versus what actually happens? Does it look good? How is it finished on the back? When they take it from you, do they put it away carefully before you leave? Or is it just kind of like hanging out there? I mean, I think there's a lot of things that you can you can tell if, if they're going to be careful or whatever, and you know, see what that is before you go in and, and say, let, okay, let's create a, re- a relationship. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you can, it's obviously better to see how they operate without them necessarily knowing what you're looking for, just so you can get the general layout of their business and, and how they operate. Okay. So let's talk about mats for a minute. So biggest mat is about the same as the biggest piece of glass. Yes. Typically, like 40 by mat- 60. Yeah, typically matting can come bigger than 40 by 60, but most, a, a lot of framers will not have the ability to cut a mat bigger than that. Yep. So 40 by the outside size is, is generally the biggest that you're going to want to mat something. And then back in the day when I was doing collections or like packages, you and I, you helped me figure out, we kind of went in and did some math and we figured out like out of a box of molding, um, what are the sizes that you could get almost no waste out of? No, definitely want to maximize the the material on the framing side. So 
For instance, if matte boarding glass comes 40 inches long and you have a product that's 21 inches, well, then that means it takes a full sheet for each of those. If we can take it down to 20 inches, then we can get two pieces out of each piece of glass and two out of each piece of matte. And it's a little bit more efficient on the molding. Yeah. So you can get better pricing that way. And that is something that I think a lot of people might not realize or think about. So as you're coming up with your products and you're thinking about how you want to incorporate framing into your business, maybe creating those sizes, if you're creating a collection or a package of some kind for your clients, to be aware of those sizes, like if math's a 40 by 60, just literally drawing that on a piece of paper and just doing the math of like, I can get two out, I can get four out, I can get six out, I can get eight out, depending on you know, what those sizes are. And then it will really help your framer be able to maximize his materials and then be able to pass along. He'll make more, you'll, everybody will make more, be better. Yeah, exactly. So talk to the framer and figure out, you know, what is the yield that we can get out of different things, especially if you're doing anything long and skinny. It might be that, you know, you need to order three of those at a time because you can get all three out of one board rather than having a whole bunch of waste each time you do something. Mm, yeah. So let's talk about hanging. So actually installing work on a wall, framed work on a wall. Are there common mistakes that you see, whether it's from a design standpoint or actually like a technical standpoint? What are some things that you feel like are really common mistakes that people make when they're hanging artwork? Um, So the most common mistake is people hang things too high or too low. Mm -hmm. And again, semi-subjective. Eye level is always the default that you kind of want something at, but you have to take into account, of course, the scale of the art and the height of the wall. But you want to be able to move around the room and have it be in in a good viewing position from different angles. You really need to make sure, again, going back to the safety portion of it, that it's secure on the wall, that whatever you're using, whether you're putting wire, we've switched a lot to what are called wall buddy hangers, where it's a two-point hanging system in the two top corners just to make it more secure and flatter on the wall and it doesn't rock back and forth. If you hang one nail on a wire, the picture can tend to rock and move a little bit. Although you and I both secure pretty much everything in place with a museum or a quake putty as well. Yeah. Okay. So what he's talking about is, so Rob, what's the size threshold that we're doing the buddy hangers? Is it like 30 inches and above? Yeah. about And then particularly on deep frames, we use a lot of deep frames, meaning they stick out from the wall a little bit, you know, two inches. Deeper frames, gravity just has the tendency to pull those frames forward more if you were to hang them on a wire. So there's a big gap at the top between the frame and the wall. So even on really small ones, if it's a deep frame, we use that flush hanging system so that they'll sit flat against the wall. Yeah. Basically it's the wall buddy hangers are, they're on both the top corners and they kind of have this little like graduated sawtooth thing. And it's really great because it's almost like a self-leveling mechanism that makes it, so you're hanging, it does require two nails or two whatever screws, whatever it is that you're going into the wall with, but it just, you're never have to, it's never going to get wonky if somebody slams a door or whatever. It just, it's very secure. And then uh, if, if we don't use the buddy hanger, so say something that isn't super deep frame, that's he's using a wire as the hardware on the back, then to secure those, once we've leveled it, you know, leveled it up and everything, then we use what is called quake putty. And that's a putty that was actually developed to prevent things from moving during earthquakes in museums and other places. And we put that on the two bottom corners and that secures it so that when they're cleaners or they're cleaning, dusting, whatever, it's not constantly moving. The pieces aren't constantly moving. So those are good, good things to have. We'll link to all of these resources in the show notes. 
for this episode so that you can have access to that. Anything else on common mis- hanging mistakes? I-, I think for sure not having it secured, like not using the right hardware to go into the wall. Yeah. Again, safety is really critical. You never want something falling off the wall when you're in charge of the installation. So if it's particularly heavy, it might need to be a Z-bar or a French cleat on the back just to make it that much more secure to where it really cannot get bumped and fall off the wall. And yeah. making sure hardware that goes in the wall is is very secure and anchored with drywall anchors if you're not going into studs. Yeah. So what about insurance? Are you... I know we have insurance for anything that we install for the photo studio, the portrait studio. Do you carry insurance like that as well, Rob? Yes, we do. And really, if you're going to be in a client's home, you really need to be insured to A, if something were to happen while you're there hanging it, and B, if, if after you're gone, again, if something were to ever fall off the wall and damage a piece of furniture or a person, you'd you've got to be covered by that insurance to know, just to have that peace of mind. What kind of insurance are you, what kind of insurance is that? What are you using? What do they call that? I just have a special rider on my business insurance and I should probably know the exact name of it, but I don't. I've worked I know. I don't know what mine is either, but and I have the same thing, but I don't know what it's called. So I was hoping you'd say, oh, it's the blah, blah, blah rider. And then I could go, oh yeah, us too. But yeah, we definitely have a rider for installation when we are in clients' homes. Got it. So look that up, talk to your insurance agent. If you're going to be doing installations, make sure that you have that. And then also make sure that any vendor that you're using has that as well. Okay, anything else? What about from like a pretty perspective? Like things too small. I think people tend to hang things too high. I don't think I've ever seen anybody hang something too low. I think they hang it too high. I think the most common mistakes are things hung too high and then also not aligned and too much space between. Yeah, and like you're saying too, just too small for the area. People mm-hmm. have a terrible time envisioning what size art is needed to really fill up the space. And so if they think that an 11 by 14 or a 16 by 20 is going to look good by itself on a good size wall, it just won't, whether it's high or low, it's just going to be too a alone. Postage and stamp. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And so that might be something that needs to go into a grouping or have other things. And so it's really good, you know, you're great at that of, of sitting down with your client and figuring out ahead of time, okay, where is this going and how big does it need to be in order to go there? But yeah, I would definitely agree. People often put things too high thinking that if I raise it up, it'll it'll look like it's taking up more space. And that's usually not true. Yeah. Well, and I love in our relationship as we've worked together through the years, there's words and vocabulary that you use that has informed me, that's educated me, and that allows me to use those same words and educate my client so that we can help them understand like why something needs to be the way that it is, like why you don't want like a skinny little frame on a big, huge thing or the hardware or, or all of those, those kinds of things. And so the relationship can be so beneficial to both businesses because, you know, I'm going to, I mean, we've had a lot of clients that have come to me for portraits and you frame all the work and we go and install it. And then they know where to come to get custom framing after that. And then vice versa, you've had people that have come to you, been longtime framing clients that will say, you know, do you know a photographer that you'll then refer? So it's really... I think it just has to be mutually beneficial. It can never be just a one-sided thing because it just won't last. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And even though the framer might be doing the work and and be the professional, you you hit it on the head. You need to be able to speak as though you know what's going on with the framing. And so you sound knowledgeable. So just sitting down with 
a framer and learning some basic terminology without learning everything, but being able to explain to your clients why certain things are the way they are. Yeah. It just helps because sometimes clients ask for things that either can't be done or that aren't in their, aren't truly in their best interest for either safety reasons, or maybe you're going to look weird design wise or whatever, you know, cause Pinterest is alive and well, and, and they don't realize that like, I, I always think it's so, so interesting where people could look at a, look at a portrait of say like a mom and a dad, you know, a couple standing full length and be like, okay, well, can we make that a square? And it's like, well, we can, but you're going to have a lot of negative space. You know, like that is a vertical, you know, but that's why they need us. They need people that can visualize and think of like, I can visualize how the portrait is going to look and then combine with your expertise of matting and framing and hardware and all of that kind of stuff. It can all work together to, you know, create a really amazing service for our clients where everybody wins. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. There's a lot of stuff that people see and then they want to change the whole scale of it and it just doesn't work. And so they have to be able to rely on you to to say, all right, you wouldn't achieve the same look if we take your inspiration photo, but we change everything about it. You're not going to wind up with what you love about this inspiration photo. And I, and I love that you will, I mean, because you're such a nice person and so respectful and kind and you really want people to get what they want, but you aren't afraid to say, okay, I understand what you're saying. I understand what I hear what you're saying, but this is why it's not going to work. But here's another way that we might be able to do it. And that's super helpful. What about acid-free mats versus non-acid-free? What are your feeling about that? So again, very similar to the glass, almost all framers have migrated to using archival and completely acid-free materials. But that is a conversation you need to have with a framer because the term acid-free gets thrown around a lot. Almost everything in our industry is now acid-free, but there is a significant difference between something being acid-free and something being archival. Archival Mm -hmm. is a distinction that is given that the museum standard, there's an association, you know, that quantifies everything that they're saying this is quality enough to meet archival standards of the museum association. And that is where you're guaranteeing that the mat is never going to cause fading or discoloration. Now, light still could cause some fading or discoloration, but the mat and the materials, materials. mat are not going to be what causes that. And so that's, I think, again, that's worth it. You don't want matte colors changing or fading or whites bleeding to to cream Mm-mm. over time. So it, most framers, I don't know any that are still using the old paper mats that are still full of a lot of junk. However, those older, cheaper mats are still termed acid-free. So you really got to ask the right questions to know what kind of materials they're using. So maybe be using the term archival versus acid-free. Yeah. That's a higher threshold. Yeah. The archival pretty much sets the distinction that, okay, And most of them, when you're looking at a sample of a mat board in a frame shop, it'll say archival on the back if it is archival. Okay. And then those tend to be what? Not paper. They tend to be rag. Oh, yeah. There's two types of archival. There's rag and there's alpha cellulose. Rag means it's made of cotton. Mm -hmm. And that tends to be regarded as the highest degree of archival that you can get. Alpha cellulose means it's made of wood, which is the same as paper. You Mm -hmm. know, it's pressed wood pulp. And there are still wood alpha cellulose mats that have the archival distinction, but the true top tier museum ultra conservation will always default to rag, which is again, a cotton substrate. And that's what we use. So we only use white and it's an eight ply rag mat. 
that we use for our, that's our museum line in our studio. And I love an eight ply rag mat. It makes me so happy. They're so beautiful. Yeah. It looks so good and just stays white and just has a, a clean, beautiful look. Just that thick and that deep bevel. Oh, I love it. So good. Okay. Well, do you have any advice, any words, pearls of wisdom for portrait photographers working with framers or anything else that we haven't covered? You know, I think we've covered most of it. Of course, you know, both industries have so much more that you could get into the details and weeds, but I think that's really just a conversation as you sit down with your framer and, you know, to make the relationship going to be mutual. So with the new or not necessarily a new photographer, but a photographer that's wanting to strike up a relationship with a framer, is it helpful for the framer to know like kind of the general sizes that they want to be selling or what they mostly sell or what maybe what they want to sell? Because the thing that I've, another thing that I've really cherished about our relationship is that I'll kind of have an idea and think, I want to do something kind of cool. Could we do this? And then you'll say, well, look at this mat and then we could frame it this way. And the mat could go in the front and the picture could go in the back. And we've done some really cool things just collaborating. And I've loved the creativity of that. And so is that helpful for a photographer to come in and say, kind of give an idea of like what sizes they think they might be wanting to to sell or like, what, what are your thoughts on that one? Oh, so that, yeah, so that, that everybody's on the same page. And over time, you'll be able to figure out, you know, what your framer can and can't do. Again, if you're wanting your framer to do something that is very difficult or very uncomfortable for them, then it's going to drain the relationship a little bit to the point where it's like, oh, well, I don't really like working for this photographer because that's the first stuff that's just not helpful for us to be doing. And so you just got to have that conversation and, and work together and figure out, okay, how can we design product that looks cool, that looks new, that's innovative, but that is also worth your time and your expertise is able to to produce it? Yeah, I love that. Well, I, and I think many of us don't think about that. We just think, oh, you can do everything. And maybe you have a nice guy or a nice woman framer who doesn't want to disappoint you, but then realizes like, okay, you're just asking me to do too many hard things. So maybe, so just have that conversation. So as we leave, Rob, where are the places that you go to get like really great inspiration for cool framing or wall art ideas, like favorite places or favorite magazines or Instagram feeds or whatever? So I go online, a lot of the the same ones that, you know, we've talked about Pinterest, House. I follow a lot of other framers and other interior designers on Instagram, just so I can see what they're doing, what people are doing throughout the country. I like, you know, I'm a framer, obviously, so I like following other framers, but it gives me really good ideas of what other people are doing and, and some new inspiration there as well. And then I still subscribe to some a lot of the trade magazines, seeing El Decor, just to see what's what's making the the trends and, and making the magazine page. I love it. Yeah, El Decor is really an awesome one because they do tend to have a lot of photography in the in El Decor magazine and interesting ways for displaying it and framing it. And so that's a favorite of mine for sure. Well, Rob, I appreciate you so much taking the time. I appreciate your expertise for many years. You've been, you're integral to my business and I appreciate you and so grateful for you every single day. And thank you for being on the podcast with me today. No problem. It was our pleasure. Thank you for the relationship that you've been able to build and maintain all these years. It's been wonderful. Awesome. Have a good weekend. I'll talk to you soon. You can find more great resources from Allison at do the rework.com and on Instagram at do.the.rework.